This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is October 7th, 2021, and this is episode 260. I'm Strato Lundabom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have just a potpourri roundup of the latest news. We're catching up on BC Poly as the legislature's back in session and everything else that is going on around the country. Thank you to everyone, though, who contributes to keep this show going with your patron donations every month or annually. Join them, get access to the Slack. We had a lot of fun obsessing over Vancouver politics in the last couple of days. A Canby report will be coming out tomorrow, hopefully, where Matthew and I will be talking about recent votes in the city. So check that out as well. But go support You're going to get passionate about parking? Oh my god. Free parking is apparently the like hill to die on in the city. Support us. Get access to that Slack at patreon.com slash politicoast. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. Before we get into the news of the week, let's come back to the greatest BC Premier bracket. Last week, it was an obvious choice. WAC Bennett won 27 votes to 6. Rita Johnston will not be crowned the greatest Premier of this province, unsurprisingly. I mean, that it's the early rounds, right? we got to get through this. And so we'll continue with the social credit Premiers this time. It's the Battle of the Bills. I didn't actually even realize I put the two bills together until I was like actually pulling the show notes together for this. And I was like, oh, it's the two bill premiers together. We have Bill Bennett and Bill Vanderzam. So let's start with Bill Bennett. Full name is actually William Bennett, just like his father, but he was more commonly known as Bill. But I learned reading his Wikipedia, sometimes they also called him Miniwack. <laughs> It, it was a term of derision initially, but he eventually owned it, or his supporters owned it. Also, he was the third cousin twice removed of Prime Minister R.B. Bennett, which kind of makes them not related, I think. Well, third cousin twice removed, that's still related. Like, it's not closely related, but that's... Th- their kids could marry legally. Anyway, Bill Bennett, Premier... Uh, 27th Premier of the province from December 22nd, 1973 to August 6th, 1986. 23 years long, not as long of a tenure as his dad, but between the two of them, the Social Credit Party led the province for 23 years, 13 years as Premier of the province, not as long as his father, but between the two of them, they led the province through a significant chunk of the 20th century. A bit of history, his father, Wacky, had lost the 1972 election in part due to vote splitting with the Liberal Party getting 16% and the PCs, Progressive Conservatives, eating up another 13%. So the Dave Barrett majority was won with just under 40% of the vote, which ironically was one of the lowest vote shares they would receive for the next 20 years, but first past the post. So WAC Bennett resigns following his defeat, and Bill 
is elected leader in September 1973. I guess the party had no disillusion about being just a dynasty and was just happy to crown the sun. Nevertheless, Bill went on to be quite successful. He won the 1975 election, he won the 1979 and the 1983 elections. He won those 75 he took with 49% of the vote. The NDP basically held their own vote. In 79, he took 48% of the vote against the NDP actually getting 46. And in 1983, he took just shy of 50% of the vote with the NDP getting 45% of the vote. So close elections, but in each time, the Socreds collected enough votes that they took the majorities. One of the things Bill did was to really revitalize the party when he took it over. He brought in a bunch of staffers and ideas from Ontario Bill Davis's Big Blue Machine, and they got nicknamed the Baby Blue Machine out here because I guess they were the junior conservatives. Once again, this is BC's approach to social credit, which is not following the weird ideology of Alberta social credit and really just doing whatever it took to build a free market coalition to keep the NDP out. And they did that for decades. As is tradition. Yes. Bill, like his father, has a legacy of many things that we know and probably love. He helped establish the BC Winter and Summer Games. He brought Expo 86 to Vancouver, although that one turned out to be a bit more controversial. He did help build BC Place, the SkyTrain, the Vancouver Convention Center, and the Coquihalla Highway. However, on the other side, he infamously tried to respond to the 1983 downturn in the economy with a series of restraint laws. These included major cuts to social services, education. They led to what was called Operation Solidarity and a province-wide general strike, one of the few we've ever seen, and just mass protests in the streets as he blamed teachers for the province's failings and just went to war with them. And it was a rough time. And so many on the left quite revile him, but he was still quite positively perceived by the conservative movement for his legacy in the province. He resigned in 1986, and he survived until, until 2015, passing away at the age of 83. Right after he resigned, though, Bill Vanderzam won the leadership in 1986 he be to become the 28th Premier. He would serve until April 2nd, 1991. Vanderzam beat 11 other candidates and won the social credit victory on the fourth ballot. He had a, I read this book, Fantasyland by Gary Mason and Keith Baldry a couple of years ago, and I highly recommend it for a bit of weird BC politics history because Vanderzam is a fascinating character. One of the first premiers we're talking about who's still alive today to our political benefit, interest, curiosity. He gets involved from time to time, and we'll get back to that. Vanderzam had a lot of personality and a lot of charisma. And so when he got in, it was a bit of Vandermania, it was called during the 86th election. He took 49% of the vote, and the NDP dropped to just 43%. And it was a sign that, oh, the Socreds are back, and they're, they have momentum. Except he didn't really come in with long-term ideas. Reading Fantasyland... I think that I read it two or three years ago. It was like, oh, here was BC's Trump, except if Trump was actually an evangelical Christian. Just a wild character for the province. Vanderzam did things like 
he didn't really have a plan for the province. So he ran into all kinds of controversies. He did try to put in his own cabinet of loyalists instead of people who are more in line with the Bennetts. But he had fights over abortion because the Morgenthaler ruling was at this time and he decided that BC shouldn't fund any abortions other than what's absolutely necessary. This pissed off people in his caucus like Kim Campbell, who would go on to be the federal prime minister and the public were quite pissed at the time. He would get in fights with Labour that went farther than I think even people in his caucus were happy with. Basically, he did a lot of things that pissed a lot of people off, which led inevitably to the BC Liberal rise as people bet jumped ship on the sinking Socreds. So if you were happy to see the Socreds die, Van der Zam is kind of your greatest premier. What took him down, though, was the sale of his flower garden and Bible theme park named Fantasy Gardens, which <laughs> he continued it's quite to the, own. It's uh, genre cross there. Yeah, it's the thing he continued to own and operate while being premier. Now, he claims that it was in his wife's uh, trust while he was being premier, but the pro the gardens were sold during his time in government to a Taiwanese buyer who was given VIP treatment by members of the government prior to the sale. He claimed, Van der Zam claims his wife did the deal and he didn't business and pleasure at in all of this, but it did lead to a conflict of interest report that was pretty damning for him and led him to resign in 1991, though he was cleared by the BC Supreme Court in 92 though the judge did note that he acted, quote, foolish, ill-advised, and an apparent or real conflict of interest or breach of ethics, but that the prosecution hadn't proved it beyond a reasonable doubt. The whole thing was pretty fishy. Yeah. Van der Zam resigns as premier, as I mentioned, in 91. Rita Johnston, who he mentioned, tries to revive the party and ultimately loses. Van der Zam doesn't disappear, though. He pops up every so often in BC political politics. He pops up every so often in BC politics. In 1999, he became the leader of the Reform Party of BC. He finished second in a by-election that year against BC Liberal Val Roddick. He later tried to merge the party with other right-wing parties but failed. He came back again in 2009-2010 and joined NDP strategist Bill Thielman to fight the HST, including the now infamous HST referendum. He goes on, he's still like complaining about smart meters and chemtrails every so often now because it's like Premier Bill Vanderzam was. So go to politicos.ca slash bracket to vote or look on our Twitter Politicos pod at the pin tweet to vote. Bill Bennett or Bill Vanderzam. If you pick Vanderzam, we can tell lots more stories about how wacky his time was. If you pick Bill Bennett, we have to talk about how many people he pissed off and if there's anything. Well, and about the things well, he helped. I know. I'd love to like dive into. The, I'd like to dive into the history, of the original Sky Train construction and stuff. So th there's some interesting stuff there. That definitely is legacy items for uh, Bennett. Let's move into our potpourri roundup. Let's start with last week. The story that was breaking as we were recording on National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, September 30th, the news that kind of overshadowed the day was the Prime Minister's whereabouts. Yeah, that morning, I believe, someone at uh, 
might mean global. What one of the media outlets noticed that even though Trudeau's schedule said that he was going to be doing meetings all day, that uh, a government jet had flown out of Ottawa to Tofino, and anyway, subsequent follow up to that found out that the prime minister was in Tofino on vacation rather than attending one of the many services across the country. Yeah, he skipped the opportunity to do a meaningless photo op to do to spend some time on the beach with his family. Now, the Prime Minister's office press team put out a statement that he was not walking on the beach, to which Global News was able to say, yeah, but you were because they sent a camera crew to interrupt his vacation and take pictures of him walking on yeah, the th beach. There's a video of him walking on the beach. Uh, Trudeau eventually apologized for this and said he regrets it. It was noted that the chief of the Tecumloops to Sequoia band uh, had twice invited him to spend the day there, or at least part of the day, in recognition that they are the first of the nation, Indigenous nations this year to announce the findings of unmarked graves. And so it would have been quite meaningful for him to be there. And particularly given the criticism of making it a statutory holiday was people are just going to go on vacation and not actually do what it's intended, which is honor and commemorate the legacy of residential schools and make us reflect on that. Kind of like how Remembrance Day is supposed to make us honor and reflect on the legacy of war and the sacrifice of veterans. Go Going surfing on Remembrance Day would be seen as uncouth if you're the prime minister. Yeah, he, he would never have considered doing it there. And the partisan defense of the prime minister are a little unhinged in the hours and days following that, arguing that he would have taken away from the somberness of the event if he'd attended any of those, and the day would have been made about himself. But that is obviously complete BS because the Prime Minister attends Remembrance Day every year, and there is never a leading story about that fact. But if he hadn't have attended, it would have been very noticeable and would have sent a message that most Canadians would find distasteful, kind of like I think most people found distasteful about him ditching his obligations as leader of the country to go on a vacation on this day rather than postponing for a day. Yeah, it's weird talking about this a full week after it's happened because it feels like most things that could be said have already been said. Yes, it's telling that Trudeau did this. Yes, it's disgusting that liberal Twitter lost their mind and started saying the media is biased over this and they need to start like... He got already like mega-ish. They were like, we need to start liberal TV channels to balance the news because the CBC, Scott, is too anti-liberal. <laughs> I don't think the CBC is pro-liberal, but they're not like... <sighs> yeah, even the star wasn't defending uh, the government on this one. And so, it's all been said. I just, is Trudeau just giving up? Does he just not care about being prime minister at this point? He's, I didn't win, a, like maybe he is planning to resign and so that's why he just doesn't care anymore. Even so, like, he's on his way out. Like, it's one day. Is he really that much of a, you know, burn it all down on my way out that he'll not wait one day to go on vacation just to not drag the party and 
the reputation of him and his potentially successors through the mud over this. It's weird. Like, he must have known this was going to be a problem because anyone with half a brain would have been able to spot the political problem that this was a mile away. And for a government that has been focused on the symbolic acts above all else, it's surprising they weren't able to see this coming and avoid it. I want to come back to the burn it all down, destroy your own party kind of element, because it's a great segue to our next story. But the one other thing that gets lost in here is he put on his official calendars that he was in meetings all day. And apparently, like, I get sometimes if you're in an office where you don't want to be bothered, you'll just make up a bullshit that you're in meetings. But I feel like there should be some accountability for the prime minister of a democratic nation to be honest about where he is. He doesn't have to tell us what meeting he's in as much right away, but... Even you can block it out for something more general than meetings, personal time or, or kind of work time, whatever you want to block it out as. But yeah, at the very least, it should have him in... The itinerary should list him in the province he's actually in, in the time zone he's actually in, which it did not do. And yeah, I think that's the part that's maybe flown under the radar a bit on this is that, it, yeah, they lied about where the prime minister was on this and they didn't have to. But yeah, I mean, all of this kind of just leaves me wondering, has Trudeau lost his touch? Like, I, I cannot picture 2015 Justin Trudeau doing anything like this. It it does really boggle the mind because it, this is the guy who went and kneeled on a grave at, I think it was the Cowessus First Nation, and placed the teddy bear there. And this is the guy who, when Indigenous protesters were on the lawn of Parliament, he went and sat in their teepee. He loves the performative stuff, even when it's bad. This was a great day for performative bullshit, and he chose not to. It's weird choices. You know what else is a weird choice that potentially implodes your own party is the green party's done yeah everything the green party has done so we didn't talk about last week how Annie paul quit in the first week after the election she announced her resignation i think we had too many stories last week it was unsurprising i think we were both pretty sure she was going to call it a day but I, it the, was maybe the only surprising thing, it wasn't the same night yeah i was gonna say the only surprising thing about it wasn't election night but then things get weird as Elizabeth May takes to the Toronto Star to write this wild op-ed titled, Anime Paul told me to stay silent, but now I must say something. Where Elizabeth May being famously <laughs> tight-lipped. I Like, this is her telling her version of the events, I think is the most fair way to say, of the past year and a bit of the Green Party. Her basically saying, I decided to step aside following the last election to make room for more diversity, which is not true because she stepped aside after Greens were disillusioned that they ran a campaign where they started it with the potential of having a caucus of a dozen or more and potentially supplanting the NDP and ended it with three, which was still better than they'd ever done. But it was also this question of, has Elizabeth May peaked? Those were the questions hanging over the 2019 election. Yeah, so she stepped down, Annamie Paul came in, and 
From the way Elizabeth May tells it, there was an immediate clash. Basically, from the sounds of it, Anne Paul thought as leader she was going to, well, be the leader of the party. And according to Elizabeth May, that's a big no-no in the dreams. And instead, the uh, leader is supposed to just be the spokesperson for what the party in general decides. Oh, but before that, May admits that, oh, I wish there had been an indigenous leader. No Indigenous Green candidates offered to run. We should note that in 2019, the Greens ran a less diverse slate than the People's Party. <sighs> like these things, they're just like missing facts in May's thing. And so yeah, she, she like admits she supported Annamie Paul and was like the unofficial endorser of her. But also in like the lead up to the 2019 election, there's this like weird semi-public overtures to words. Jody Wilson-Raybould to try and join the Greens. That mayor's like, ah, it'd be really nice if this new independent would, would join the Greens. The, the whole thing's just weird. She criticizes Paul for trying to run the party like the, quote, CEO or chair of an American business model and relied on relatively autocratic powers along those lines. She then... Which, she, to, to, to me, just reads like... She, Paul was trying to lead a party like any political party leader does. Well, and there's a particular racial element that needs to be called out here, like a strong-willed black woman comes into power with a vision of how it should be run, and you go, oh, she's being autocratic. And it's the same kind of criticism that will get levied against a woman who comes in with a strong view by men who've led the party. It's not a good look. Don't do it, Elizabeth May. She goes on to criticize Noah Zatzman, who I think we both agree de definitely deserved a lot of criticism and Paul's decision to stand by Zatzman, even as he like publicly denounced half two thirds of the caucus. That was not a great decision by enemy Paul. And then just it just goes on. A lot of it is this, what more should I have done, Anime Paul? What more should I have done to support you? And it's like, at no point during the last six months, Elizabeth May, did you come out publicly and say, this is our party, I support the Green. She argues that part of it that she offered to step aside in Saanich Gulf Islands for Anime Paul to run there, but Paul decided to run in Toronto Centre in this election. I've got to wonder how sincere that offer was. I yeah, Paul absolutely should have run in Stanish Gulf Islands and May should have done the th honorable thing and stepped aside, but that just doesn't strike me as a particularly Elizabeth May thing to do. I've sincerely offered to give up her seat. And what I've read from Paul's statements is she said she was informed by advisors around her that she should run in Toronto Centre. And so, like, if Elizabeth May wanted Ooh, Paul wait, to wait, run wait. in BC... I'm pretty sure she could have made it happen. Or at least just step aside, just quit. Announce you're leaving politics. And if Paul doesn't want to take Sanders Gulf Islands, fine, someone new comes in. But the fact that you're like, I'll step aside if you ask me to, but then you didn't ask. I don't know. And who are these advisors that told Paul to run in Toronto Center? It's the most obviously boneheaded decision that anyone in the group well, maybe not the most obvious. There were some pretty bad ones throughout the book. But in terms of like just raw tactical decision-making, that has to be one of the worst decisions in terms of which riding to run in that anyone in Canadian political history has made. 
on that. And you got to wonder if those advisors were more interested in sabotaging her or are just incompetent. Because those are really the only two explanations on why you would tell a green leader to run in Toronto Centre rather than Vancouver Island. Uh, May's other allegations is that Annamie Paul is still in control of the party's communications, so she's resigned but has not actually notified the council and is still running the show in the dark. And so Elizabeth May, quote, feels a bit gaslit, which, so this part strikes me having run small organizations as quite campus student club-y, like the Green Party, as far as I understand, doesn't have a permanent executive director right now. They laid off a bunch of their staff just before the election because they had no money left. And so I'm almost wondering if Paul has the keys because there's no one to give them to. Yeah, although in the lead up to the election, it took a long time for anything on the Green Party website to be updated around Paul or her team or what they were running on for the election stuff. And it almost seemed like the Green Party back in August was not handing over, I don't know, the Nation Builder login or whatever they use for that. So yeah, it, it the whole thing just seems dysfunctional kind of on both ends. And I don't know, maybe Paul hasn't given it back, but like surely they have to have some ad web admin somewhere who can handle this sort of thing. Well, and they and May criticizes Paul for refusing to allow news that Lorraine Reckman's an indigenous woman from the Anishinaabe First Nation is the new president of the party, but Paul refused to let the press release of that to be announced. So no one knows that this diverse executive has just started. I've seen other people point out it is on their website, like maybe a press release didn't go out, but maybe Paul felt like tokenizing someone wasn't the step to do. I don't know. This is ugly and it's... It's a little untruth to be airing the dirty laundry in public like this. Yeah, it's 100% just, they're just having their fights in public still. They've stopped going under green sources. It's now just Elizabeth May just wrote the op-ed rather than her... I'm betting she was probably the source for most of those or like half of the stories in the last year. And then Paul was probably the source for the other half. It's great. So yeah, anyway, the greens are not doing well and continue to not do well. And at least the election is over. So they have a few weeks or months. So they have a few months or years to sort their shit out. Whether or not they'll be able to is another question. So, do you think Elizabeth May is going to return as leader? She has said she's ruling it out. She has said she doesn't, or no, she said she doesn't want the interim job, I think, which might be a way to say she wants to run in a leadership race, because usually parties don't let interim leaders run. Yeah, and there's a lot of, oh, I'm not really thinking of running before someone actually announces they're running. So it's hard to tell if this is a sincere I'm not running or a wink-wink I'm not running. I think most people hope she doesn't run. Yeah. Even those who respect her, like, just for the party's sake. But it also seems like she hasn't really let go. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the Conservative Party. The other One of the other parties that lost the election, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they all lost, but the Conservative Party, how are they dealing with their loss? This week, they got to d- d- vote on the Reform Act. 
Yeah, so this is the piece of legislation that was a private member's bill by Michael Chong back in 2013, 2015, somewhere around that time. 2014, I'd have bracketed. The basically, the theory of this was to give members of parliament more control, like reshift the balance of power away from party leaders towards the party caucuses and individual MPs. The eventually watered-down version that passed basically sets out four things that a party can opt in on, or a party caucus can opt in on at the start of each session or each parliament, and they need to take a vote on it. So that would be whether the MPs get to control caucus membership, i.e. can the leader summarily decide someone is no longer in caucus. Derek Sloan. Uh, yeah, I was actually going to say, Derek Sloan is, I think, the example of where this most recently came up, because after the 2019 election, the Conservative Party did vote to enact that measure, which made it slightly difficult for O'Toole to boot Sloan out of the party caucus once it became a problem. Additionally, they MPs can select whether they get to elect the caucus chair whether they MPs can launch a leadership review, and whether MPs can choose the interim leader. Notably, this week of those four items, the Conservative Party caucus opted for number three, that the MPs can launch a leadership review. Yeah, after the 2015 and 2019 elections, the M- Conservatives... In fact, all parties, really. Well, after the 2015 and 2019 elections, I was going to say the Conservatives invoked powers one and two, the caucus membership and caucus chair selections for MPs, but they did not choose to have the leadership review. And they did opt in 2015 to choose their interim leader because they knew then that Harper was resigning. He did so fairly quickly after the election night. I think it was Uh, on election night, I believe. Yeah, but it wasn't in his speech, which was weird. The... NDP has never invoked these powers, the Liberals have not invoked these pl- powers, and according to Samara Canada, the Bloc Québécois invoked the caucus membership, caucus chair, and interim leader powers in the follow-up of the 2019 election. I don't think the Greens can invoke these because they don't qualify as a real party in Parliament, because what's the point of these powers when your caucus is one or three people? So politically, this is interesting, right? O'Toole is saying his leadership is safe. He's happy to face this challenge and he's confident he has the votes. But this does suggest that there are enough conservatives who want to... This suggests at least half the caucus is willing to have the vote. It doesn't say how they'll vote, but you have to presume if you are supportive of O'Toole's leadership, you wouldn't vote to have the vote, if that makes sense. Yeah, or at least solidly behind O'Toole. If you definitively want him to remain leader, yeah, you probably would have voted no on this. Now, this doesn't immediately launch a leadership review. It will take 20% of the caucus. I had done the math. The Conservatives have about 120 votes. So you do the math at home, dear listeners. 20% of the 120 people in caucus, if they sign a letter... A public, not a public, but an internal letter, a motion. I guess it's actually more than 120 because this would include senators. Yes. Because the conservatives have Senate caucus. They're the only party with senators left. Anyway, 20% of the conservative caucus of MPs and senators vote 
Oh, fuck. Does the Reform Act include senators? Now I'm just confused. Anyway, 20%, if they vote or put their name down, they can trigger private leadership. The CPC caucuses their Senate and their MPs together, so I would think it must include it. This is an act written by a conservative, so presumably it would have included that. If 20% sign it, there is a secret ballot over whether or not to keep the leader. So I guess the next two questions we're looking for are, will that letter get the signatures it needs from conservative caucus members? And if so, how will the final vote go down? That I have no idea. I, I think at the point when once the thing is triggered, O'Toole's daughter resigned, right? When 20% of your caucus is at the point where they're wanting to boot you out, like you've effectively lost enough of your caucus that you really can't continue as leader. That's probably true. That's probably fair. You could Maybe they just want to have the vote, but then you get 80%. Maybe it's just 20% are mad at you. Maybe 20% are publicly mad at you, or even 20% support having the vote, and then you get 100% of the vote. It could happen. And just for reference, I pulled up the actual act, and caucus means, for this purpose, members of the House of Commons, so members of Parliament. Okay, so they would need, what, 25, roughly? Ish, Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, I was reading one article about the conservative strife, and there was one member of parliament from Alberta, from Lakeland, I forget her name, but she was complaining that her vote share dropped by 15% in this election since 2019. And that... Oh, so she only got 55% of the vote? Oh, it's better than that. So she thinks O'Toole's head should roll over this, or there should at least be some accountability. But her 2019 result was 82%. It's Jesus. You're still over 70, or she was like high 60s, low 70s, something like that in the 20... 21 election. You're fine. You won comfortably. Someone who gets 55% of the vote wins comfortably. You could bleed so many votes. Yeah, so. and that's the real thing. Like the O'Toole strategy obviously didn't pay off this election, but it's hard to see any other strategy that will actually get them to government because the sheer way just doesn't work. Like mathematically on and with the electoral map, it's a non-starter to actually forming government. Yeah, if you piss off 10% of the prairies, but it actually puts Ontario in play, and if it had been executed on uh, better during the election, and they'd pulled, I don't know, 2% more in the GTA, they probably would have flipped a bunch of ridings, and it would be this story of tactical brilliance on O'Toole's part to win a bunch of seats. I'm hoping he stays around, because there was nothing wrong in that campaign that experience and learning from the mistakes couldn't fit and actually bring them into a competitive position, but the internal politics may not permit that. Yeah, we've talked about this on the last couple times we brought up the Conservatives. It's a really tough balance to keep that coalition together. It will be tougher to make it politically successful in Canada right now, but once again, you're facing a fairly weak liberal party, and if they can focus on that, if they can focus on who their enemy is. What's been interesting is O'Toole hasn't turtled in the way that Mulcair did after 2015, and so that's on his side. 
he does need to keep making his case and does need his supporters making the case and he does need to actually campaign for his job because if he doesn't he will be stabbed in his back the way Mulcair was in 2016. Yeah, he's in trouble but it's still survivable at this point. And how him and his team manage it's going to be definitive on that. Let's pivot over to British Columbia and to the Victoria and to the legislature in Victoria. They were back in session this week. Still, I th- they're in person. Everyone who goes into the legislature has to be vaccinated. Every MLA is officially vaccinated, which is great to see. To just really emphasize, every MLA in BC is vaccinated. Federally, there are still questions like the Conservatives haven't said all of their MLA are all their MPs are vaccinated. The Bloc has actually been calling them out for that and are like, we don't want to meet in person if all Conservatives can't be guaranteed to be vaccinated or all MPs. Yeah, there's I think that's over- more of a disclosure thing from O'Toole's point of view than anything, but yeah, but uh, he Ontario's also probably just- doesn't want to pick fights. Yeah. But also, like, Ontario's had some fights. I think it's, was it Randy Hillier, the MPP there? Yeah, has, he's, uh, he's definitely not vaccinated. Yeah. Hasn't been allowed in, or there's been a fight with the Speaker. I, I haven't followed in detail. But uh, yeah, I gather him and the Speaker of the Ontario Legislature are not getting on over that issue. But yeah, huge credit to the three parties in the House to have all of their caucuses fully on board. I believe they're all pushing all of their staff to get vaccinated as well. If they're not already, I suspect pretty much everyone is. Just good to see. Good to, that's the kind of leadership that's nice to see with no partisan breakdown. There's one nice thing in BC politics for a while has been the like far-right fringe hasn't found a voice or a foothold here. And I'd like to see that continue for a long time and we can have reasonable debates over what kind of childcare program should we have like we had in the last one, where everyone supported a greater childcare program. <laughs> that said, there are still lots of heated topics to discuss in the legislature. I haven't been following question period too closely, but I know the Liberals have been and the Greens have been talking about the overdose crisis and the toxic drug supply, which is important and what the government is doing or quite often not doing in terms of addressing that tragedy. The heat dome and the deaths that could have been avoided there has also come up. So important questions are being asked. And we got three new bills this week. The Government House Leader Mike Farnworth teased that there would be a lot of legislation coming, and this week we got three bills, Bills 17, 19, and 21, which respectively create a provincial park and expand some others, do some updates to the Societies Act, and the always fun Miscellaneous Statutes Amendment Act. This is the second one of this session. My, my favorite miscellaneous statute in there, of course, being the Updates to trampoline park safety rules. Trampoline park trampolines are deadly, Scott. They're my kids will never jump on a trampoline because I don't want them to break all their limbs and die. They might not die, but that you break so many injuries on trampolines. That's probably very important. Yeah, it's, yeah. There, there may be a bit of luck that I managed to make it through without hurting myself on one as a kid. The Society's Amendment Act, as far as I need to do a good deep dive into this for work because I work for a nonprofit and also like and a just boots a, of society, we should probably Yeah, that's we should a good know point. what's in there too. We don't have as many members though, and members are the real 
threat to a society. No offense to members out there, but they do have rights. The Societies Act was updated, actually, it was scrapped and rewritten from the previous Society Singular Act in 2016. And this amendment purports to address a number of issues that arose just in the course of time as you, you know, deal with a new piece of legislation, you go, oh, this should be like this created a little bit of extra error issue here. One of the things I noticed in there is like, every society has to keep a members registry. And any member can request access to that. And now because that creates a giant privacy question, it's emphasizing that the member registry should only include a name and contact info and no extra identifiable info. And it also changes how a society can move to restrict that information because, again, a members list can contain a lot of personal and private information that boards of directors would often want to keep private. So really like nuanced, boring, but important changes like that for the many nonprofits in the province. The first bill 17, the Protected Areas of British Columbia Amendment Act that I mentioned, creates a new provincial park on South Vancouver Island and expands a number of others. And one thing it does is brings in a lot of Indigenous names into provincial parks. So it's all good things to see. I saw Adam Olson was supportive of all those goals, but potentially critical of the bill itself. And I have not gone into why he was critical of it. So there's undoubtedly more debate to happen on these three bills, none of which actually were anywhere near platform promises, as far as I know, in the NDP's 2020 bid. Yeah, I don't recall uh, Horgan running on improving trampoline safety last year. It might have gotten noticed, though. It would have been the, like, puppy mill issue of 2020. Next week is a break week for the legislature, so they'll have to wait until the week after Thanksgiving to continue to move these bills along. I know the Child Care Amendment or the Child Care Act is continuing to work its way through committees and a number of other bills are still before the House, including, I think, the ICBC bill. So there's still lots going on in the legislature, though they did have some time to debate the throne speech this week, which feels like filler. How, how did they not wrap that up back when the throne speech happened? I've got to be honest, I don't watch enough legislature. This might actually be pretty common. It just seems ridiculous, though. There's got to be a more efficient way to structure things than debate the throne speech months after the throne speech and that everyone will know will pass regardless. The amount of time they spend on estimates debates is also feels excessive at times and the way it's done. But it's how it's done here in BC and it's not like a criticism of the NDP. It's just these are the norms that our province's legislature has developed. Like the federal government doesn't have months of estimates debates over its budget, but we do. I'm sure someone will write us if they have better insights into BC legislature procedures. But one thing they are also looking into fixing is royalties. The province has officially launched a comprehensive natural gas royalty review and has released an initial independent assessment of our royalty regime, which has found it's not fit for purpose. I haven't had a chance to go deeply through this. I'm assuming you haven't. No, I definitely have not. I believe it only came out today. Yeah. 
it's not a document that includes a bunch of strong recommendations, but it's one that more just tries to say, here's where our royalty rates are at for natural gas and oil. And are they getting the value that British Columbians could? Because under our federation, everything under the ground belongs to the crown and companies essentially lease the right to extract that and sell it. And so they pay royalties to the province. And this assessment written by PhDs Nancy Olaweiler and Jennifer Winter concludes that the BC royalty system for natural gas and oil is broken. It does not support and contribute to government and societal goals. Among its areas of concern, it flags that Alberta did do a review in 2017 and or following the NDP's election there in 2015 and brought in a new system in 2017. And BC's system is quite archaic relative. And so sh we should at very least try to mirror their system to make it a little more efficient and equitable. I'll be curious to see where this goes because the Alberta NDP's royalty review was largely seen as a failure by the NDP's supporters who were hoping to see the province I don't know, just milk the oil and gas companies in that province for what they're worth and use that to fund everything they'd hoped and dreamed. And instead, they got like technocratic tweaks. I think a lot of. Although, also, isn't one of like the longstanding NDP complaints about Alberta that they are too reliant on oil revenues and need to broaden their tax base to not just be a resource extraction economy? You, you can do both. Can you, though? If you're just milking them, and that's going to fund every social program on your wish list, it sounds like that's what you're doing, though. It's making the province more dependent on oil. You're not wrong, now that I think about it. I guess the idea is to make sure that the extraction that is happening in the province does benefit the people of the province and not just the shareholders of multinational companies. And using that money, hopefully in a way, perhaps more like Peter Lougheed, had intended to create a wealth fund or like a Norwegian sovereign wealth fund to invest over the long term and then using more sustainable taxes to fund things on the ongoing basis. Point being, they didn't end up doing that in Alberta. The royalty regime didn't actually increase the rates very much. I think there's also a consideration from environmentalists here that maybe this is the opportunity to end the subsidies that oil and gas extraction receives. I'm, I don't know where the province is going to land on here. I'm, I note that this report only mentions the word climate eight times, and in every time it does, it's a matter of BC has climate targets, but it doesn't really dig into whether our royalty regime addresses those. There's one brief section on greenhouse gas emissions. And I'm not um, optimistic this government is going to end those subsidies considering they themselves brought in a bunch of them for the LNG project. Like they're giving them like an exemption from the carbon tax or a lower rate. I can't recall exactly what it was, but they're not charging the full carbon tax on one of the, the big LNG projects and a bunch of other stuff. Maybe what we'll see out of this is a better deal for first nations and more encouragement along that lines is 
if royal if oil and gas is going to be extracted, the royalties need to benefit local First Nations, and that'll be a way the government helps get buy-in on projects that have been more controversial in the past. And I'm curious to see where it goes. It's going to be a large consultation, it sounds like. So if you have strong opinions about oil and gas revenue, going to get your chance to have your speak your piece, whether or not they hear you, to be determined. Jumping back to the federal scene, there's a story in CBC News actually just today that Jody Wilson-Raybould according to sources, when she was Justice Minister, wasn't consulted about the government signing a deal to free the Catholic Church from residential school compensation. Essentially, lawyers in the Justice Department in 2015 cut a deal with the church to just let them off the hook from the money they were promising survivors. This was $79 million dollars from the 2005 Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. They pledged to make best efforts to raise $25 million for survivors. In the, less, in the end, they raised only $4 million, and they were going to pay restitution of $29 million in cash, which was not paid after they spent millions on legal and administrative expenses. They then did a bunch of in-kind services, which I think I saw a different uh, story that highlighted that many were just proselytizing efforts. Yeah, the story actually specifically says they committed to delivering $25 million of in-kind services and that, yeah, that, and it notes that critics say some of this was designed to convert savers, or convert survivors. So it's not even clear that they did a full $25 million on that. Regardless, in 2015, a judge ruled that the Catholic Church should basically drop its compensation to $2 million and didn't have to do any of the rest of the stuff in the previous settlement. That decision was appealed uh, on August 14th, 2015, which I believe was actually in the caretaker period of the 2015 election. So yeah, the basically the yeah caretaker or the kind of conservative Ministry of Justice had appealed the decision after the election, Jody Wilson-Raybould is sworn in as the new attorney general. And then six days after that, the department files a document with the court basically saying, yeah, we're not going to continue this case anymore. We're dropping our appeal. Which was described as quite shocking by at least one source that you wouldn't notify the new attorney general especially a person who is Indigenous and was notably the first Indigenous Attorney General, that you were dropping this very prominent case. Yeah, it's just, regardless of who's the Attorney General, it's absurd that this wouldn't have been brought up to the Attorney General. Because I believe the Catholic Church is the largest religious denomination in Canada. It's a major settlement with them. That alone would raise it to the level where you advise the justice minister on this, as would a residential school settlement. Like, no matter how you slice, this is definitely the sort of thing that should have political oversight on it. The TRC Commission released its findings in June 2015, like just months before this. It was clearly in the news that residential schools were bad, and yeah, there, was a, there was a lot of un dealt with guilt, frankly, on the government and the church's side, hands. 
And here you have a case that just goes away. So I, I don't have any idea why it wasn't brought up to the Attorney General, but I can't see how that was above board in any way on this. And hopefully there's uh, more digging on this and the opposition parties press the government on it. Yeah, big shout out to NDP MP Charlie Angus, who's been fighting for information about this kind of information for years uh, and many others and to the many journalists. There's been bevy of stories over the past few months on the Catholic Church and just everything that they've tried to get away with to absolve themselves. Like basically every other church involved in residential schools in this country has apologized and sought to make restitution. And the Catholic Church has been dragged every step of the way to where they are right now, which is finally with the Canadian Catholic Bishops Committee, whatever it's called, issuing an apology. But they're still, it sounds like they're working on a Pope apology. He's planning a visit to Canada, but it's not officially an apology yet. So the stuff about them using their in-kind donations to proselytize is gross, given what residential schools were. Do better. You're so, you, you claim to be the moral authorities. Act like it anyway. And also the government, come on, stop letting them off the hook. Yeah, I, I, I'm now curious if, uh, like, Peter McKay was the justice minister and, and attorney general before Jody Wilson-Raybould. I can't imagine he wasn't briefed on this. Like, they started the appeal. It's weird. I don't, yeah, I'm so really like, curious who, who decided to stop it. Like, where did that decision get made? Yeah, and 10 days after the, or six days after the new cabinet was sworn in, like, to me, that like the the timing tells me that this was a decision of the new government not to pursue it, which feels out of place for this government. I mean, we saw Trudeau go behind Jody Wilson's Jody Wilson Raybould's back, or be willing to go behind her back on SNC Lavalin. Yeah, so. I mean that that's on brand for Trudeau in that respect, but the other respects of this, it, it feels off base compared to where they were. More to find out. We'll keep our eye out for more stories. Let's finish off with the Supreme Court of Canada's most recent decision. We talked a bunch of law stuff last week, but this came out almost right after we were done talking with Micah. Next day. So I, I think between the record and the release of the episode, this decision was released. This is Toronto City versus Ontario Attorney General. This is Doug Ford's decision to kneecap Toronto City Council in the middle of their 2018 municipal elections. The Supreme Court ultimately decided he's right. He was fine. And the decision was constitutional. But it was actually a quite contested Supreme Court case with a 5-4 decision in the end. Very split. And like a very stark decision with Justice Wagner, Molde, just Justice Chief Justice Wagner, Brown, Moldaver, Cote, and Roe all saying Toronto was correct, or all saying the province was correct with Abella, Karakastanis, Martin, and Kassir. God, I got to get his name. All basically taking the Supreme Court, the Ontario Court of Queen's Bench, the lower Ontario Supreme Court, whatever the first justice who said it was a violation of free speech, they just, they basically restored those decisions. So very stark kind of decision here. Before we dive into it, I'm glad to see more kind of split decisions coming out of the court, particularly in the, I think, 
later part of the McLaughlin court, you got a lot of 9 nothing decisions, which I'm not a lawyer, but just as an outside observer, it seems to me that if stuff's reaching the Supreme Court, it should be the sort of thing that is complex enough and where there's going to be enough kind of uncertainties and different interpretations of it that you should, in fact, see some differences of opinions among the, the top jurists in the country. And didn't strike me as a particularly healthy direction things were trending at that point, just in terms of general institutional approaches to things. So I'm glad to see it reverting to a more, or to, to a court where they're more likely to hash this stuff out in dissents and decisions. And I think there were consistently, especially Cote was it has been infamous for dissenting. It's interesting to see her on the winning side for a change. It's because I think she's with the more conservative justices and Wagner actually sided with them. Although Roe is just a rogue, independent thinker among this court. Our court is not as partisan as the American one, and that's a good thing. What McLaughlin, just as an aside, what I think she was good at was bringing people together into fewer decisions. So you would have... Like right here, we have the reason for judgment and a reason for dissent, and there's only just two decisions. There have been cases when there are four, five, six decisions, and that's really hard to figure out what the court is actually saying, especially when you have the TWU versus Law Society of BC case was three concurring decisions about why TWU should not get a law school and then a dissent on why they should. Uh, it's a mess, but at least there was a majority on one of them. So McLaughlin had a talent for bringing people together so the law could at least be a little bit more clear. But I agree, if things are getting to the Supreme Court and they're being decided, and I know that's probably a sign our courts of appeal are really bad and not getting good decisions. But let's come back to this case. So back in May 2018, Toronto municipal elections are underway for an election in October. In July, after the closing day of nominations, Ontario introduces legislation to reduce the size of Toronto City Council. It comes into effect on August 14th and reduces the number of wards from 47 to 25. The city and groups of private individuals challenge this, saying that it's a violation of their free expression and their right under Section 2B to effective representation, and it's not justifiable. The Lower Court in Ontario agrees and writes quite a strong decision saying this is like offensive to free speech. The Court of Appeal in Ontario flips it, and now Wagner and Brown have written this decision basically saying free speech isn't an issue here. The court, the state doesn't really care whether you, whether what you say has an effect. So they can screw with the effect of your speech. They haven't censored anyone. Like people could still talk about the election. And yeah, people could talk about the election, express themselves at the ballot box. Like none of the fundamental rights were impinged here. Like it was bad form for the four to do this during the election, but ultimately no one's rights were trampled on in this case. And then they say there are a number of unwritten constitutional principles that are being invoked by the complainants, but the majority here says unwritten constitutional principles cannot be used to invalidate laws. The 
dissent, the other four justices say the exact opposite. They say free speech was impinged because the right to disseminate and receive information connected, connected with elections is a key part of the democratic principle underlying freedom of expression. And this was the state literally upsetting the election to throw off potentially how people could express themselves in their democracy. And also unwritten constitutional principles are used all the time in Canada because like the UK, lots of our constitution is unwritten. In fact, the entire UK constitution is unwritten, but while we have the charter, much of our constitution remains unwritten and we invalidate things all the time using that, or at least used to. It's a fascinating read to compare the majority and the dissent here. Yeah, I, I don't find the dissent's position that compelling. It's one thing where you have a kind of the written constitution isn't very clear on something, so you're relying on the unwritten parts as, as guidance, but the constitution is pretty clear that municipalities are creatures of the province and that there is no separate constitutional order for them. You know, it what doesn't really follow that you can invent one out of thin air or, or out of kind of the unwritten constitutional principles against the actual written constitution in this case. But yeah, fa fascinating case. I think the court came out on the right position on this overall, and it's probably a good thing kind of long term that provinces still maintain their ability to interact with the city governments. Because God knows there's a bunch of different reforms that uh, need to be brought into city governance, and the cities aren't going to do that themselves. I think what this highlights is the weakness of municipal government in our constitution, right? Like you point out, they are creatures of the province and the unwritten constitutional principle here is what is democratic and fair? And the argument is undermining the middle of an election. No one disagrees that Ontario should be able to change the size of Toronto City Council. The question was like the timing. And so was that timing anti-democratic and is that anti-democratic nature fundamental enough to invalidate the act? It would have been fascinating to see what would have happened if the court had gone the other way. What would the order have been at this point? Because we're now three years out. This is actually a fast turnaround for the Supreme Court to have decided. But I guess they would have had to invalidate the results of an election three years ago in the city of Toronto and force a new one with more wards. Practically, it would have been very weird if the tr city had won. Well, Toronto, Toronto's got to be going back to the, the poll sets here, right? So they, they probably would have just ordered uh, that the next election things be restored, I'd guess. And now there's enough time that the province could like legitimately change the rule. <laughs> anyway, what a mess of a case. Doug Ford's a shit premier and he did this in a shit way, but he got away with it because not like pure luck, but... Yeah, he got away with it. Yeah, That's it's it. also worth noting that one of the interveners in the case was the Attorney General of British Columbia, and our government sided with the Ford government on this one, which is not surprising because what's the is it Vernon? I'm trying to remember what which one of the Interior Municipalities? I think it's Penticton. It's Penticton. That's it. Yeah. So the government is currently in a fight with I think it's Penticton over whether or not, I think it's BC Housing Projects, 
can go ahead after the city government's trying to block them. And like we, the BC government has very clear interest in it, ensuring that it can get needed social housing built in the parts of the province that it decides is necessary to build those in. And it's, I think, easy to zero in on Ford here, but in terms of the broader view of things, it's not clear that expanding municipal governance powers and constitutionalizing them in this way would have led to better governance and better outcomes for the country. I just want to note Justin McElroy's recent tweet about Penticton today, where he says, is the city okay? And highlights two headlines where one says, Penticton, BC mayor accused of assault as civil property battle gets ugly. And the second heading says, crime, quote, crisis, says mayor. Penticton mayor says Penticton in crisis mode over crime, implying that the mayor is committing all the crime. Anyway, is Penticton okay? Toronto is not. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening.